Hello and welcome to the Green Canary. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about cash for koalas. We're going to be talking about what's current with electric vehicles. I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm so sorry about that. All right, I'll move on. And we're going to be talking about how our genes, not our blue genes, but how our genetics affect our love of the great outdoors. And much, much more. I've actually just been in the great outdoors. I was in Kosciuszko National Park. Where were you all weekend, Elfie? Hi. Um, where was I? I was down the south coast of New South Wales in Kaurong. It was absolutely beautiful. Fantastic. I know. Take me back. I just want to nap on the beach for another week. Yeah. Well, look, I'm not going to let you. I'm going to make you do a podcast here. Uh, but before we get into some of the news stories and others that we just mentioned, I want to play you a little sound, a little special sound of the Australian bush. All right. Okay, so what I'm hearing sounds sort of like popping bubble wrap in my brain mixed with the sensory experience of drinking bubble tea. What am I listening to? Wow, that is so poetic. You Thank really you. you really blow me away sometimes, Elfie Scott. <laughs> um, you're listening to the Pobble Bonk Frog. It's called the, Pob- so, the Pobble Bonk Frog. It is onomatopoeia at its finest, meaning, you know, a word that sounds like the thing that it sounds yeah, that, that it is. Uh, pobble Bonk, Pobble Bonk, Pobble Bonk. <laughs> Absolutely terrific frogs. They live in eastern Australia. They live underground most of the time. They don't do much when they're underground. Then it rains. Out they pop. And when they come out after the rain, they do as much pobble bonking. Whole word is very important there. They do as much pobble bonking as possible. Well, I'm sure they could be doing a lot of bonking as well, to be honest. (laughs) You went there. (laughs) I did. Why not? All right. So let's get into it. Our top story of the week. The Greens have said that they would demand an immediate moratorium on all new coal, oil and gas projects in return for supporting Labor if the federal election leads to a hung parliament. So this is big news in the run-up to the election, with the Greens potentially holding the balance of power in the House or the Senate uh, after the the election. Yeah, I mean... Look, this is a obviously a um, hypothetical s- scenario, mm. the, the hung parliament. We we did see it after Gillard's first term. Um, it's pretty unlikely. There are 151 seats, I believe, in the lower house of the Australian parliament. So you'd have to get something like 73 or 74 to the coalition and to Labor each, plus a few independents thrown into the mix. So it, it's only a theoretical thing we're talking about here that – that the Greens will, as you say, uh, demand an immediate moratorium on all new coal, oil and gas projects in return for supporting Labor if the parliament is hung. But it's 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 theoretical, but it's, it's a good sign from the Greens. It shows they're willing to play ball. It shows they're not going to dig in the way they did in 2009 and said we're only going to have an emissions trading scheme our way or no way. And of course, we all know we ended up with no way. So I, I like the tone that Adam Bant is setting here. Yeah, I totally agree. It's sort of the Greens coming to the table with a sort of, I guess, a softer approach than maybe we would expect. Um, and, you know, there's been some commentary that it's a way to sort of cut off the criticism of Labor that could potentially come from the Libs at the moment saying, you know, that it's going to team up with the Greens and have these really radical climate policies. It's a softer approach and it's just saying, let's put a, let's put a pause on this. It's not an official legislative pause, but it is a little pause nonetheless. Yeah, it is. And it, it's it's very much in, in, in keeping, I think, with with what most people in Australia want. I don't think we do want any more new um, 
big, dirty, ugly fossil fuel projects. Uh, we've got a few of them in the pipeline already, um, like Scarborough and WA that we talked about last week. Um, I don't think the Australian public wants any more. The Greens know that. The Greens have, of course, very aggressive uh, emissions reductions targets, much more aggressive than, than Labor or, or, or the government, the co- coalition government we have now. Um, and the only way they can really meet those is to put a put a complete stop on new fossil fuel projects. But they've couched it in terms that are reasonably palatable. And as I say, I, I, I think the, the vibe's about right on this one. Yeah, yeah, totally. I agree. And, you know, this is all happening in the context of the run-up to a federal election that people are saying more and more is going to be uh, dictated by climate policy. They've said that before. We've heard it. But um, we will be seeing that in the future. Who we knows? We will. Um, But let's talk about our next story of the week. So the federal government has announced a pledge for a $50 million cash injection to improve the protection and recovery of koalas. Uh, This was announced this week when uh, Scott Morrison went to a zoo and there was a this obvious uh, video of him holding a koala. Scotty it's a bloody opportunity, was, isn't it? Um, <laughs> doing some of his best marketing work there, wasn't he? But, yeah. Uh, and, and, and this is, um, look, in a sense, it's terrific and in a sense it is marketing. Last week, a billion for the reef. Mm. This week, 50 for koalas. Uh, he's not out there funding wetlands or... Uh, we love wetlands. We love wetlands here at the Green Canary. We, we interviewed wetland specialist Matt Herring in wetlands. But they're not sexy, are they're they? They're not sexy. Um, Although, now that I say it out loud, wetlands. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'll tell you what is sexy. I'll tell you what is absolutely, you know, front of people's minds when they think the environment. They think the Great Barrier Reef. Mm-hmm. They throw a billion at the reef. Um, that, that billion may, may or may not do much, but they throw a billion at the reef. They've thrown 50 million at koalas. The 50 million includes 20 million for health and habitat protection projects. It includes $10 million for community activities such as habitat restoration. It includes $10 million for a koala monitoring program because we need to monitor the koalas. <laughs> Got to count them, baby. <laughs> Got to, um, but you spoke to, to someone who's all over this this week, didn't you, Alfie? Yeah, totally. Um, so, you know, there is the argument that the cash is a great thing, but conservationists are also arguing that it's basically not enough. So I spoke to Alexia Wellbelove, who's a senior campaign manager at the Humane Society International, and here's what she had to say about it. What are the real problems that koalas are facing on the ground in Australia and the biggest issues that are threatening them as a species? One of the biggest uh, problems is the destruction of their habitat. So um, trees and um, bushland where they live are being knocked down, um, particularly in high growth areas like southeast Queensland, down the eastern seaboard. Um, in favour of housing development and development generally. So we just they've just got less and less um, places to live, and that's a real trouble. There's lots of other things that are not assisting with their um, recovery, such as um, diseases such as chlamydia, chlamydia and things like that. But you know, habitat destruction is pretty much up there as as the top you know issue. Yeah, sure. And does cash like this actually address that problem? Um, I noticed that there is there does seem to be some allotted money for habitat protection, but is that enough in your opinion? Well, look, money is always going to be helpful, of course, right? Because you know we need we do need to restore habitat, which is what this money is going to. We do need to understand where our koalas are and how we can help them to recover. But 
at the same time, if habitat's still being destroyed whilst money's going into recovering habitat, we're just always going to be behind the eight ball. So what we need to do is actually strengthen our environmental laws, stop that destruction of habitat, really put a, you know, a ring around um, those places where koalas live and, and breed and say, right, we are not going to touch this habitat, even if it's prime development location. We're going to um, preserve that habitat as, you know, protected strictly and um, then also put money into recovery and look at how we can make sure there's um, some good joined up habitat for them. So we need to be doing both. So absolutely money is always welcome, but you know, at the moment we're not stopping that destruction. Um, and of course things like climate change are also gonna be impacting the koala. Their you know, range could be changing, they're gonna, you know, like any other um, animal, they're gonna be impacted by the, impact, by the effects of climate change. Um, so we need to take all that into account. So that was me speaking to Alexia Wellbelove, who's the Senior Campaign Manager at Humane Society International. So yeah, like she said there, there are a couple of issues facing the koalas. There's a lack of habitat, there's rampant chlamydia, and climate change. Actually, now that I say that out loud, those are the problems facing my generation too. Um, (laughs) I don't want to know about that. Anyway. I'm um, I'm glad I'm my generation, (laughs) if if, if that's true. But but it'll be if... um, just, just to pick up on one point that Alexia made, um, and, and this throws to the, the $50 million that the federal government's uh, putting towards koalas in the first place. Um, she spoke about habitat and the need to put a ring around uh, ko- koala habitat, mm. and that's actually a state government issue. Um, you know, I think one of the problems with koalas, and that's been demonstrated again and again in New South Wales, is, t- to use just one example, that... Property developers are given too too free reign uh, by by state governments. Um, there's a housing development out in Campbelltown where 1,700 uh, houses are currently being built, residences in co- in areas in an area that encroaches upon koala habitat. Right. Uh, how okay. that was greenlit, we will never know. Uh, land clearing has taken place on private properties that bulldozes trees in which koalas lived. John Barillaro, uh, before he left as Deputy Premier of New South Wales, set a terrible tone there. He called them tree rats. Um, this problem with with not enough koala habitat sort of has started and ended at state level. So it's great the feds are chiming in, but I think we need some state protection as well. Yeah, yeah, 100%. We need to see that big sort of comprehensive combined effort to really bring them back from the brink. Indeed. All but, right. But uh, we also need a uh, – this is this is me trying to do a segue. Um, it's beautiful. I, I love it. I want to see what happens here. Uh, let's, let's see where we go. We just need a combined effort, don't we, Elfie, to make electric vehicles more accessible to all Ooh, Australians. Oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah, <laughs> That's it a was segue. Close. That was a close. So <laughs> this is, but, look, we're, we're talking about a story that came out this week – um, in the Guardian Australia that did say uh, that electric vehicles, they now make up almost 2% of the new car market. This is a uh, not a huge rise. And, you know, the number is something like 11% in Western Europe. But we sold, a lot more were sold last year, weren't they? Yeah, totally. So let's jump back to 2020. I believe there were 6,900 electric vehicles sold that year. And then last year, that figure jumped to over 20,000. So, I mean, yes, it is still a small percentage of the greater market share of cars, but it's still a massive, um, you know, it's a massive leap in those sales. It's coming in again, again, you know, there's, there's... There's a state and federal 
uh, issue yeah. here. Um, people like the CEO of the Electric Vehicle Council of Australia have said that the, the government are providing too many barriers. We've talked on this podcast about how, for example, the ACT government has provided interest-free loans for people who want to buy electric cars. Mm. Um, it's absolutely um, the states uh, that, are, that are paving the way uh, to to electric vehicles becoming more commonplace. But I think I think we need all sorts of reforms at all sorts of levels because they're still too expensive, aren't they? Oh, my God. Yeah, okay. So the current most affordable model is an MG ZS, and that still costs $44,000, yeah. which is approximately $40,000 more than I would ever want to spend on a car, let's be honest. Uh, that is a lot. And, and you know, what, one, one of the things that they're saying is if we can get government fleets as EVs, um, what typically happens with government fleet vehicles is after a few years they become uh, used cars that, that people trust because they've been serviced properly and so yeah, on. Right, so okay. we need them in areas like that so that people can buy them used, they don't have to pay for it, for a new car. Um, and then down the track, I, I mean, this is this is a little bit tangential, but I, to me it's always interesting um, – how are you going to charge your electric vehicle? We need a lot more charging stations. Yeah, the um, infrastructure needs to be there. Um, it, it, at the moment, if you charge it at home, well, you need to have a garage. So you don't need just to own a car that's expensive to buy. You need to you own a have home. a house yeah, that has yeah, a garage yeah. on it. Um, and so these, these are all um, evolving questions. We're a bit behind the eight ball. But it's good to see these figures this week showing we are now up to 2% of the market. Um, one in yeah. one in fifty cars in Australia is electric. Get, we're getting there. Slowly. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are keen. They're just waiting for the signals from the government that this is going to be a financially viable option. Yeah. Okay. So look, let's move on to some little things. Uh, we call this section mulch. Just little bits of clippings. Bit of green this, a bit of green that, and I'm going to talk about a bit of green inflation. Now, okay. What is green inflation? And <sighs> look, economists love inflation, Elfie. There's inflation. There's deflation. There's stagflation, which Always sounds a bit rude, but stagflation is when the economy's uh, in recession and you're having inflation, which actually all models say shouldn't happen, but it does happen sometimes. <laughs> it's very bad. Whole How do you know story. about this? Um, I have an economics degree, but don't tell anyone. Oh, God. I know, it's, it's, it's unfashionable. Um, greenflation, it, this is just a story I read in the Atlantic this week. Uh, it's not an uplifting story. It's quite a deflating story. Uh, well I'm done. Sorry. Yeah, thank you very much. But... Basically, it, we talked about coffee last week. We talked about the fact that coffee is in trouble as a crop. Uh, mm -hmm. Climate is st starting to change in areas where coffee is grown, starting to make uh, to, to, send, to point towards coffee being more scarce, mm -hmm. growable in fewer areas. That will send prices up. Classic example right there of greenflation. It's happening across the world. That's what this article talks about. It's happening where wheat crops fail due to a drought. It's happening with fossil fuel. It's happening with, with resources like timber in forests that are being affected by fires and other things. So greenflation is a thing, not an uplifting article I read in The Atlantic. Just thought I'd mention it because it's another reason why it makes economic as well as environmental sense to tackle climate change. Yeah, um, it's a fantastic article, but again, yeah, thank you for ruining my week with depressing news, thank Ant. You. Yeah. But you do have a better story, don't you? You've got a oh, I'm so cheerful with, story. So in love with this story. The Australian men's cricket captain, Pat Cummins, um, you know, he was sort of, he, he, he's such a tone setter. He's such a fresh uh, breath of air. Um, now I find out he's climate conscious. He says he doesn't um, 
particularly think it's terrific the way he flies around the world, wants to have a look, you know, playing cricket, wants to have a look at his climate footprint, Mm -hmm. has set up a sort of cricket climate initiative. And one of the things they're going to do is um, have solar panels at cricket clubs around Australia. Uh, It's a campaign that he's launched. I just love the fact that the Australian cricket captain is not just thinking about how to rub sandpaper uh, on balls and cheat or, you know, like like players of past, not just thinking, oh, how many girls can I get in my hotel room on tour? <laughs> He's actually thinking how many uh, emissions did my trip around the, the, the world cost? Um, how can I offset that? What can I do? Love you, Pat Cummins. You go, love it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what a good egg. And honestly, um, the past couple of weeks with sports and climate news, we're getting into a bit of a niche here, aren't we? Yeah, we are. But but climate and sport, uh, sport is one of the biggest forces of pop culture. And yeah. that's why, as we discussed last week, not terrific that Gina Reinhardt and uh, Hancock Prospecting are sponsoring the Olympic team. Just not terrific. Yeah. Is terrific that Tennis Australia said ta-ta, bye-bye to Santos. Uh, and it is terrific that Pat Cummins is setting a green tone in Australian cricket. Love it. Okay, so now I have a couple of studies for you and I'm going to start off with my depressing one of Mm -hmm. the week. So this is a new study that has found that coral reefs are suffering under climate change worse than expected. So these researchers looked at coral reefs around the world and found that at 1.5 degrees of warming, which I'm sure we all know we're barreling towards Mm. and we're probably going to hit within the next 10 years, uh, 99% of reefs will be stuck in this cycle of heat waves and they're not going to be able to recover. Um, So that contradicts a 2018 IPCC report that said that at 1.5 degrees of warming, about 70 to 90% of coral would die out. It's actually a lot more grim than that. So Um, we've gone up from 70 to 90 to 99%. I mean, there was this school of thought that some reefs would be immune to it. Some reefs live uh, or exist next to areas where there are frequent upwellings of cool water um, from nearby oceanic trenches. Um, other areas have um, coral that, that, that can be resistant to, to warmer waters. But, yeah, this latest um, very depressing report uh, that, that um, you've unearthed says that, forget it, we've got to tackle climate change. Seems to be the bottom line for everything. <laughs> Luckily, we're about to profile some people on Green Canary Podcast who are trying to do just that. And lastly, Elfie... You and I both went to the great outdoors this weekend. Yeah. I went to Kosciuszko National Park, as mentioned. I love my mountains and my mountain streams. Uh, you went to, to coastal regions. You 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 love your, your beaches and your coast. I do. I can't and get enough of it. What have you got? What's, what's this study telling us about people who go to the outdoors? All right. So this study has found that genes seem to play a role in people's connection to nature. So it was a team of researchers and they looked at the variation in people's sort of feelings of spiritual and emotional connectedness to nature and they found that there is there does seem to be a genetic difference between people they looked at over a thousand pairs of twins and they found that identical twins are much more similar to each other in the strength of their connection to nature than non-identical twins are well look and I reckon that's interesting. I mean, it, it, isn't it, it sweet? It, it is that you know some people have more of a propensity to seek their happy place in nature. Mm. But I've got a bit of a sort of theory that that anyone can make nature their happy place. You need to take them there. You need to show them it. If if nature is not, I've taken people bushwalking before, uh, you know, overnight and said, "Hey, look at this," and explained the landscape to them. 
and it does change people. I think it's like when you go overseas, you, you become a lot less xenophobic. Um, and I think everyone should be taken to the outdoors, whether they have this genetic propensity towards it or not, <laughs> and the world would be a better place. I agree. And, and honestly, your passion for the outdoors <laughs> is infectious. Anybody could get it off you. Thank you. All right. So before we wrap up this episode, as always, we would like to pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and future, as well as extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. That's very well said. Thank you. And I would just like to remind all of our listeners that I'm writing a podcast. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm doing a podcast right now. I'm writing, <laughs> As we speak. <laughs> indeed. It is happening now. I, I'm writing a newsletter. I'm going to be doing that later tonight and tomorrow. We send a weekly Green Canary newsletter. Some of the stuff in the newsletter is what we've talked about in the potty. There's also some other stuff. Um, and it's really uh, just another level of green news that I hope you all get around. So you can email us at hello at thegreencanary.co, just .co. Had about um, 10 people uh, stick their names on the list last week. Thank you for that. Welcome to the newsletter. And don't forget you can chat to us on social media as well. We are at Green Canary Pod on Twitter. We are at Green Canary Media on Instagram. We're even chirpier there than we are here in the studio, I think, <laughs> Elfie, and I might be all chirped out this week. Yeah. All right. Well, we will see everybody next week with all of the environmental news that you need to know. Bye. See you then. Bye.